Well, greetings, everyone. I hope that you have been encouraged already this morning as we've spent time worshiping Christ. Thank you, Carrie and Tally, for teaching us that new song. I know that all week it's been in my mind and in my heart just celebrating that truth that Christ is our hope in life and death. What a glorious truth. And uh, I'm glad to have been able to sing that this morning. Um, Go ahead and take your Bibles this morning and open up to James chapter 3. We will read our text and then pray together. James chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1, James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Father, as we open your word today, We pray that you would speak to us, that you would give us insight not only into the text of Scripture, but give us insight into our own hearts. Expose the truth of of the Scriptures and also expose, Lord Jesus, the areas of our lives that need to be changed. I ask God that you would not only shine light on our sin and on our need for change, but also shine light on the truth of the gospel, our hope in the righteousness and death and resurrection of Christ. Forgiveness can be found there for sins, and power can be found there for change. So we ask God that you would work now through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage in James's epistle is an intensely practical section. It's so practical for not just me, not just you, but really for everyone in the world, because whether you speak English, whether you speak Spanish, whether you speak Mandarin Chinese, whether you use sign language, we all use words. And James is very clear that our words matter. They matter greatly. James picks up here on a theme that he's already touched on back in chapter one. In verse 19, he told us we are to be slow to speak. And in verse 26, he informed us that the person who thinks he is religious, who thinks that he lives a life pleasing to God, but does not bridle his tongue, that man is deceived. And James says his religion is worthless. So this is a serious 
matter. The thesis of James, the the main point that we've been talking about week in and week out, is that genuine faith should affect every aspect of our lives. So the question is, how should our faith, if it is real, if it is alive, if it is authentic, how should that faith affect the way we speak, the words we use, or to use the, the descriptive language of James, our tongue? Well, James urges us to be diligent stewards of the tongue in several ways, three ways, and I want to show those to you this morning. And the first point comes from verse 1 through verse 5, and it is this. We must be careful stewards of the power that the tongue wields. We must be careful stewards of the power that the tongue wields. James gives us several reasons why we need to be careful about the power of the tongue. In verse 1, he says, first of all, because we will be held accountable. We are going to be held accountable for the words that we use, the things that we say. In verse 1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know, so here's his reasoning, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. It is impossible to teach this section of Scripture without feeling the weight of it, even as I'm talking to you right now. But teaching presents a great occupational hazard because those who teach inevitably use many words. Proverbs 10.19 says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. It is inevitable as imperfect people, the more we talk, the more opportunity there is for sin. And apparently some in the body there that James was writing to, they desired to be up front. There was something about that that was appealing to them. They wanted the the honor that comes with teaching or the, the respected position of being acknowledged as a teacher in the church. Because especially in those days, the teachers were the ones with influence, the ones with prominence, the ones who had an audience. Nowadays, all it takes is a cell phone and, or an internet connection and you can have a huge audience. But in those days, to have the position of teacher in the church was unique in that it gave you an audience. In those days, not everyone could read, and not everyone perhaps even owned a copy of the scriptures. So the teachers filled a very important role, not only in the church, but even in the community. But James says, do not be quick to jump into that role of teacher, because teachers, he says, are going to be judged with a greater strictness. Teachers will be held accountable. Those who teach, you see, are expected to represent God in what they say expected to represent not only God and his character, but to communicate his truth accurately and rightly and to shepherd the flock, the bride of Christ, those for whom he died, to shepherd them faithfully. And this requires true and right words. You see, teachers in the church have the power to either create unity or to cause division, to give hope to those who listen or to cause despair to impart wisdom or to confuse, to guide into truth or to lead people astray. Words are powerful. They're powerful. And we who teach must be careful stewards of that power. And some of you may say, well, I'm not a teacher, so this doesn't really apply to me. But look carefully because the fact that teachers will be judged with greater strictness should give us pause because it implies that everyone is going to be judged for their words to some degree. The fact that teachers are held to a greater judgment 
means that even those who do not teach are going to be held um, to some standard, and there is going to be a judgment for all. Jesus makes this clear in his teaching. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus says this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What this means is that your exaggeration, your gossip, that word of slander, your bending of the truth, your boasting, your complaining is seen and evaluated by a holy God who is omnipotent. He knows all things and he is a righteous judge. On judgment day, our words, Jesus says, are going to be evidence on the table. They will be displayed. Our words are works that reveal the genuineness of our faith or expose the fact that our faith is dead. Chapter two, if you remember, makes it plain that a workless faith is a worthless faith. Such a dead faith cannot save. We will be held accountable and our words matter. So we must be careful stewards of our words because we will be held accountable. But also James continues in verse two, not only are we going to be held accountable, But the reality is we are all prone to sin in this area. Look in verse two. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. I probably don't have to convince you that all of us are guilty of sin when it comes to our speech. We have all transgressed with our words. It's just so hardwired into our nature so often our mind thinks something and the next moment, our, without even thinking, our words are saying it. Or, or perhaps we've harbored something so long and stewed over it so many times that d- despite our greatest efforts, we, we can't control the tongue and what's in our heart comes out. What's the emotions in our heart comes out. The, the, the news or the information that's in our heart comes out. The emotions come out. Maybe it's an angry outburst. Maybe it's a jealous whisper. Maybe it's a fearful excuse. Or perhaps it's a proud comment or a self-interested lie. Maybe it's a hurtful jab, a disrespectful remark, an insincere response. But we all stumble in many ways. James says, if anyone does not stumble, he's a perfect man. Verse 2. And I don't think that James is trying to set up here this hypothetical scenario of a person who's actually able to live a sinless life, not sinless perfection. If you remember, James has already used this word perfect back in chapter one to refer to someone who is mature or complete. So what James is saying here is that self-control in the arena of your words, your speech, that itself is a mark of maturity. And the one who can control his tongue is sure to have self-control and victory in all other areas of life as well, because this is one of the hardest battles to win. If you can win this battle, James says, then you've learned the secret of self-control and you've reached a certain level of maturity that we should all aspire to. The opposite is also true. The person who can't control their tongue is therefore immature and lacking in the spiritual fruit of self-control. Galatians chapter 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and self-control. 
self-control. James says, if you have self-control in the air of your mouth, then you must have learned to have self-control in all areas because this is one of the biggest challenges we face. In verses 3 and 4, in order to underscore the power of words and the difficulty of learning to master our tongue, he gives us two vivid illustrations, the illustration of a horse and the illustration of a ship. And he says that although that bit is small, it's a small little piece of metal, it has the power to turn the body of an animal that weighs 1,000 pounds. That's a lot of power in a small item. Similarly, although the rudder of a ship is just one small piece of wood, it has the power to turn a massive boat that's loaded with cargo. Small things can have great power. And James says in the first part of verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Your words have power. They have the power to build or to destroy a relationship. Your words have the power to bring healing and comfort or to inflict pain and cause damage. Your words have the power to change the direction of a person's life. The tongue is small, but it boasts great things. And James urges us to be careful stewards of the power that the tongue wields. We must be careful stewards of this power. But point number two in verses five through eight, James also wants us to understand that we must take serious precautions against the damage that the tongue can cause. We must, we must take serious precautions against the damage the tongue can cause. In the second half of verse five, he writes, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. You see, not only is the tongue very powerful, like a bit or like a rudder, but the tongue is also potentially very destructive. Two observations here on the dangerous, damaging nature of the tongue. Although the tongue is small, it has a big impact. Look in verse um, 5 and 6. He says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. In 2010 and 2011, uh, the state of Oklahoma was plagued by this rash of wildfires, brush fires, forest fires. And amazingly, it was discovered that it was a forest ranger, a, a firefighter, who, who was guilty of starting, intentionally starting these fires. He confessed to this in court. He confessed that he would often simply light a piece of paper or a pile of leaves to get the, the underbrush that was dried out um, by the drought, to get it to catch on fire. And the reason for this was that he was bored and he loved the excitement of fighting fires. So 39-year-old Mike Malinsky um, was caught in this destructive behavior. He ended up facing 56 counts of arson and was personally responsible for destroying 10,000 acres and endangering human life. And ironically, he did all this because he wanted the adrenaline rush of fighting fires. Now, most of us would never think of intentionally starting a forest fire. At least, I hope. I hope you're not out there doing that. But how many of us are guilty of verbal arson? Saying things that start fires and cause damage. You see, all it takes to destroy thousands of acres is a spark. And so also our words can destroy. Our words can destroy careers, marriages, families, churches. 
gossip and slander and critical speech that undermines and tears other people down, that sort of bitterness and anger and pride is extremely flammable. That's what James is telling us. We see this in the Psalms as well. In Psalm 120, verses 3 through 4, the psalmist writes, What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? He's speaking here to the tongue personified. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. The tongue can cause damage and destruction. Not only is the tongue a fire, according to verse 5, but James also says it is a world of unrighteousness. The tongue can have a defiling effect on all of life. True religion, as we saw in chapter 1, keeps itself unstained from the world. But James warns us that the whole body is stained by the unrighteous world of the tongue. It stains the whole body, James says setting on fire the entire course of life. James warns us not to underestimate the damage that words can cause and the destruction that can ripple outward in these ever-widening circles. Words cannot be taken back. I wish they could. There's things that I know I've said that I want so badly to take back, but I can't. Once your words are spoken, they spread and they gain momentum like a forest fire. And once something's been burned, there's no unburning of it, just the slow process of healing that can often leave scars. James even says that the tongue is set on fire by hell. This is strong language. James wants us to wake up to the seriousness and the danger of our words. He says it is set on fire by hell. This hellish fire symbolizes all that opposes God, all that opposes his truth. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16 that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. But how sad that too often members of the church fan those flames by their words. Consider the first evil that entered the universe. Do you remember? The first evil in God's good creation was Satan's evil boast. I will be like the most high. The first lie was Satan's seductive speech to Adam and Eve. You will not surely die. My friend, Satan is a liar. He is a deceiver. He is a slanderer. Scripture says he is the accuser of the brothers. And every time that we boast, every time that we lie, every time that we slander or accuse or bitter towards other people, we are following in his footsteps. The tongue set on fire by hell itself. Not only can the tongue be destructive, but also, James continues in verses 7 through 8, he says, although the tongue is small, it's incredibly hard to control. He says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I can't say it better than one commenter did. He says, even though man has dominion over all the animals, because of the fall, he has lost dominion over himself. And I think that really captures the spirit of what James is trying to say here. We can tame so many different kinds of creatures, but James says no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil that is full of deadly poison. It's unpredictable, isn't it? 
poisonous words that can kill trust and kill relationships, that can kill your testimony, poison that can kill your reputation. And James says, no man can tame the tongue. What do we make of this? As we read through the dire description that James gives us, does that mean that we're just supposed to throw up our hands and give up? Because this is an impossible task. I guess it is what it is, and we're just destined to start fires and spew out poison, and there's nothing that can be done about it. Because look, James says himself, you can't tame the tongue. No man can tame the tongue. Is that the takeaway that we should be getting from this text? Well, no. This text, though it is convicting and it is sobering, it should not cause us to despair. I think James would agree no man can tame the tongue by himself. But as Jesus says, things that are impossible with man are possible with God. God can, through the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit, in the life of a regenerated believer, produce the good spirit-born fruit of self-control. It is possible for us to tame the tongue, not in our own strength. Left to ourselves, we are slaves to sin, and we are ruled by the flesh. But the gospel brings not only forgiveness for our failures, it brings us freedom from the enslaving power of sin. And with the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we can and must learn to tame the tongue. So James is not saying that it's impossible for a person to ever master his tongue. He's simply saying that in general, the tongue of man will always be a problem. And in our own strength, we're never going to beat this thing. As James says, we all stumble in our words. But thankfully, we know that Jesus Christ is the word made flesh who came and died so that we could be forgiven for our sins of speech and so that we could be free from the power of our untamable tongues. So my friend, if you read this text today and you are despairing of ever maturing in your faith and of ever developing self-control when it comes to your speech, then you are failing to believe in the gospel today because the gospel does bring hope of freedom. Do not doubt the power of Christ, the one, as we celebrated last week, who triumphed over the grave, who rose again. If he can defeat death, he can help us tame our tongues. So do not give in to despair and unbelief today and throw in the towel. Don't neglect your responsibility to fight the good fight and to lay aside the weights and the sins that so easily entangle us and seek to grow and become holy in the way that you use your words. You see, the mouth should be, through the power of the Holy Spirit, used to bless God and to express the love and the kindness that is so perfectly displayed in Jesus Christ. So if you are born again, if you have genuine faith, you've been truly converted, then you can expect growth. You can expect change in how you use your words. But if we're going to do that, we first of all have to take the sin seriously. We have to know what we're up against and not underestimate it and not excuse it. And that's where James's text is so helpful to us as he urges us to take serious precautions against the damage that the tongue can cause. So we need to take seriously the power of the tongue. We need to be on guard against the damage that it can cause. And then third, we also must beware of the deadly hypocrisy that the tongue can reveal. Beware of the deadly hypocrisy the tongue can reveal. Look in verse 9. With it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and 
With it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. There is a sinister hypocrisy of the tongue, both blessing God and cursing men who are made in the image of God. And James exhorts us pastorally, these things ought not be so. You can translate this as stop doing that. That's out of place. That's a contradiction. So if you take one thing away this morning, get James's command in verse 10. These things ought not to be so. We are under an obligation to speak in a way that reflects who we are in Christ and reflects what we believe and that we trust in him. Such behavior to bless God and curse men, such behavior in a follower of Jesus is radically inconsistent with who we are called to be and is a gross contradiction. It's an insult to the maker of the one who's being cursed. It is disobedient to the command of Christ who tells us to bless and not curse. And it is a kind of hypocrisy that may expose a heart that is not redeemed, someone who's not been reconciled to God. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, John writes, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see, what comes out of the mouth reveals the true contents and the character of the heart. Blessing God and cursing man is incompatible. It's contradictory. It's hypocritical. James describes it this way in verse 11 through 12. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? The answer is obviously no. Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? The answer is obviously no. He says, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He says, listen, what you are in your character will be exposed by the words that come out of your mouth. Jesus says, if I can point you back to Matthew chapter 12 again and read a little bit more this time, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned." Jesus and James are singing the same song, that who you are, what you are on the inside is evidenced by the words that you speak. And if all you get is salt water, when you claim to be a fresh pond, if if all you get is is figs, when you claim to be a grapevine, if, if all that comes out of your mouth is destructive speech, when you claim to be a follower of God, then you are a hypocrite. And you are not what you claim to be and not what perhaps you think you are. James is warning us to take inventory. And if we truly belong to Christ, to give evidence to it by the way that we speak. The reality is if your words are corrupt and destructive, then that shows you have issues on the inside. 
It's not just a problem with your mouth. It's a problem with your heart. To bless God and curse man recalls the double-mindedness of chapter 1, verse 8. And James said there that such people who are double-minded should not expect their prayers to be heard or to receive anything from God. An untamed tongue reveals spiritual hypocrisy and potentially even reveals spiritual deadness, that the one who professes faith is not a true believer. James's point is that what we say is a big deal. Your words matter. Your words matter. Your tone matters. Your intent matters. The tongue is able to influence. It, it, like a bit, it turns a horse or like a rudder that guides a ship so words can steer a person, can steer a church, can steer a family. The tongue is able to destroy like a fire in a dry forest. Words can devastate a heart or a marriage or a church. So are you guilty of verbal arson? Is your tongue a poisonous spring? Perhaps for some of you, your mouth has been speaking two contrary messages. You bless God in church on Sunday and then curse the slow driver in front of you on the way home. Or perhaps you encourage someone at small group on Wednesday and then yell at your wife and belittle your kids on Thursday. My friends, these things ought not to be so. If this is an area of sin that you struggle with, I want to give you some practical counsel today before we finish. Let me give you just some practical direction. Number one, I think that this text helps us to take our sin seriously, and that's what you need to do. You need to confess your behavior as sin, not minimize it, not excuse it, not justify it, but call it what it is. When you spew out words that, that are not pleasing to God, don't just call it venting. Don't just call it, well, I'm just being real and telling you what I think. No, the, the world may use those terms. The world may excuse and justify and redefy sin and even spin it into being some sort of a virtue that I'm just being authentic or I just need to vent. But no, we need to confess this behavior as sin, to recognize it for what it is, behavior that does not honor God and, and behavior that is incompatible with our profession to know him. Behavior that reveals spiritual immaturity and a lack of self-control and reveals some issues in our heart. If you struggle with sins of the tongue, confess them as such. Call it what it is. That's the first step to having victory over it. You confess your sin as sin and receive God's forgiveness. And then you seek his grace as you repent and turn from that sin. Secondly, not only do we need to call it what it is and confess it, but I want to exhort you to not just deal with it at the surface level. You have to attack these issues at the level of the heart. The reason we say things that are hurtful and damaging and wrong is because of the anger and the bitterness and the pride and the selfishness that are latent in our heart, that have infected us it's in our flesh, and we have to fight the battle at the level of the root. I think I've used this illustration before, but you know, you can send, like for myself, I have four kids. I could send my kids out to pick the heads off all the dandelions in my yard, and it would look great for about three days. But the roots are still there, and they're just going to come back. We have to deal with things at the level of the heart. Not only are we attacking the, the sinful things that are present in our heart, the anger, the bitterness, the pride, the selfishness, 
Instead, we need to, after we pull out the weeds, grow some grass. We need to cultivate the the proper Christ-like virtues of humility and love and patience. If those are the things that are in your heart, those are the things that will come out and and be present on your lips. And and as you seek to examine your heart and do this heart-level gardening, and as you're digging for these roots, it may be possible that as you investigate your own heart, you might discover that the heart is dark and that heart is enslaved to sin and there is no light there. There is no gospel root and what you need is first of all to be set free by coming to Christ in faith, trusting in his gospel so that he can save you and make you right with him, make you alive and fill you with his power. You'll never have victory over sin if you're not saved. It's impossible. It's impossible. So do the work at the level of the heart. Discover what needs to be removed and what needs to be cultivated. And if you don't know Christ, then you need to come to him today. And you need to confess your absolute need for a savior. Confess your sin. Trust in the work of the cross to make you before God considered righteous. And then allow him to do the work in you over time to bring you more and more day by day into a place of living out that righteousness. So confess sin. You need to attack these issues at the level of the heart. And then third, I want to urge you to offer yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. This language comes from Romans chapter six and verse 12 and 13. There Paul writes, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Think of that in terms of what we're addressing today. Do not let the sin of angry speech, bitter speech, proud speech, deceptive speech, do not let those sins reign in you to make you obey its passions. Verse 13, he says, do not present your members, including the tongue, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, including your tongue, to God as instruments for righteousness. Confess your sin, attack these issues at the level of the heart, and then offer yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. Like the hymn says, take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee. We offer ourselves to God to be instruments in his hands, to speak the things that he wants us to speak. This is gonna mean that you have to submit yourself to Christ. This is a matter of obedience. It's a matter of fearing God. It's, it's a, it means the death of self, and it means that we give ourselves to him and trust in his grace to use us. It means that there's really no such thing as free speech if you are a Christian. There's no such thing as free speech, not in terms of our citizenship in the United States, but in terms of our belonging to the kingdom of God. We are, all of us, under his law. And as we offer ourselves to him, we come obediently and submissively acknowledging that he has the authority to tell us what we can and can't say and how we can and how we shouldn't speak. Christ has all that authority. And as we offer ourselves to him, we do so obediently and submissively. King Jesus reigns and he expects all of us to submit to his righteous rule, including in the area of speech. So you really don't have a right as a Christian, to say whatever you want. That right has been nailed to the cross. You have been crucified with Christ and you will now take up your cross to follow 
Christ. We now have a truer and better freedom as servants of God, as slaves of Jesus Christ. We have freedom from sin, but not freedom to sin. We relinquish those rights when we come to receive the freedom of life in Christ. If you're going to offer yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness, it means obedience and submission and fear. It also means that we're going to be cultivating self-control. Again, this, as you offer yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness, you will be more useful to him as you increasingly grow in self-control. This means we have to depend on the Holy Spirit. It's a day-by-day process where it's often two steps forward and one step backwards. But as we grow, as we mature, as we learn to increasingly rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, we will become more and more useful, a sharper tool, a cleaner instrument in his hands. Let me just practically encourage you to pursue wisdom. A wise tool is more useful in our Redeemer's hands. We could do an entire sermon series through the book of Proverbs, just focusing on what Solomon has to say about the tongue. I've already read several of those texts to you this morning, but just take a month and read through Proverbs and, and make a note of every time we find wisdom that applies to our speech. You will be helped. You will be challenged. It will help you to become wise. As we do this, as we offer ourselves to God, as we submit to Christ, as we cultivate self-control, as we grow in wisdom, what you will find is that your words will become a vehicle of God's grace rather than a destructive fire, rather than a poisonous spring. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't you want your speech to give grace, to build up people who need to experience God's grace, who need to be reminded of his truth, who need to sense his love through your speech? That is what we are called to. Now, I want to clarify, this doesn't mean that our words must only and always be affirming. It is necessary at times that truth be spoken, even in a way that hurts. Sometimes the truth does hurt. Sometimes the truth cuts because it exposes sin. But there is a huge difference in the kind of cutting that that grace-filled, truth-driven speech brings to bear and the kind of cutting that that angry, bitter, proud speech brings. Just like there's a huge difference between a back alley stabbing and a surgeon's careful incision in the operating room. There's a big difference between biblical rebuke and sinful accusation. There's a big difference between the necessary exposure of error and sinful gossip. And the difference, I think, is often found in the intent, in the purpose. A stabbing in a back alley is meant to cause damage and to inflict pain, to destroy. But a surgeon's scalpel and the cut that he makes, that is intended to help, even though it may hurt. So also, biblical rebuke and correction may sting, but the aim and the goal and the purpose and the intent is always truth and health and grace and love even if there is some necessary pain in the process. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. But the point remains that whether you are giving affirmation 
whether you're offering encouragement and giving that kind of grace or whether you are offering a loving and humble rebuke and showing that kind of grace, we are called to offer ourselves to God and to allow our words to convey his message and to reflect his character. If God is our father, and if we have faith in his son, and if we are walking in the power of his spirit, then the content and the flavor of our speech should reflect that. As children of God, we're meant to look like our heavenly father. And that means our words can and should be used as a means of grace to others. I love what Proverbs 25.11 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Proverbs 15.23 says, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season, how good it is. Our words can bring life and hope and grace and peace to people who desperately need those things. We have the joyful privilege, friends, of being the bearers of good news. We get to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Our words are to be gloriously employed in the service of the king and to speak life, speaking words of life to those in need. I I hope that as you read the book of James with me, And as we consider this text, that we will be on guard, that we will take great care about the danger of the tongue, that we'll take inventory of our own hearts, and we will guard our hearts and do the hard work so that the words that come out of our lips would bring life, that the message of grace and peace would pour out through us to others, that our mouths would be instruments that God can use, instruments of righteousness to bring about his good purposes and to display his glory, and to share his gospel, and to extend his love to people who need to hear it. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have spoken to us words of life. We echo the words of the disciples to Jesus. Where else are we going to go? Because you have the words of life. And God, it is sobering for us today to consider the difficulty of taming the tongue, the power that words can wield, the damage that words can do. Lord, we don't want to offer our members as instruments to unrighteousness. Lord, help us. Pray that you would grow us, address the issues in our heart today. If there's any listening today who have bitterness in their hearts, who have not forgiven someone, pray that today you would bring conviction so that their heart can be changed because then their words can follow suit. If there are those who deal with anger that is buried deep down inside, perhaps anger at every little thing that happens around them that is probably rooted in anger about something long ago, I pray that you would bring that to the surface and that they would have the humility and the courage to deal with their anger. Lord, I pray that the fear and the unbelief in our hearts would be transformed into faith so that the words that come out of our mouth do not express doubt or complaint or apprehension, but rather so that our words would proclaim your faithfulness and your power and your goodness. God, we want to be instruments of righteousness. We want to share grace and love and truth with people in a way that points them to your son, Jesus Christ, in a way that builds up and edifies. Pray, God, that you would make our mouths 
sharp and useful tools in your hands. That you would make our homes and our families places where grace and truth are spoken in love. Pray that you would make our church a place where the culture of our speech reflects Christ. Lord, we know we all have room to grow in this. None of us are perfect. I pray that today you would point us to the one who was perfect, to your son Jesus Christ, that we would find relief from a guilty conscience in his cross, that we would find hope for victory over our tongues in his resurrection. We praise you. We ask for your ongoing help. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.